You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode number 77 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Last week, we looked at the Battle of Port Royal Sound, which took place on November 7th, 1861. We mentioned how within a few days after the battle, the victorious Federals had occupied the towns of Port Royal and Beaufort. To their surprise, they found that most of the local white population had hastily fled inland, The flight of the area's whites, besides turning Port Royal and Beaufort into ghost towns, also meant that some of South Carolina's most prosperous plantations, which were located along the Sound on a number of the area's so-called sea islands, had been abandoned. Well, abandoned by the whites, that is. Eight out of ten Sea Island inhabitants were black, and when their owners fled, about 10,000 slaves were left behind on the Sea Island plantations. According to the official records, the naval version, as the Union sailors and soldiers probed the nearby rivers and inlets in the days after the Battle of Port Royal Sound, they found that, quote, the whole surrounding country was seized with a perfect panic, end quote. Not surprisingly, since their owners had fled, the newly liberated slaves were taking advantage of the situation, gleefully vandalizing their masters' abandoned mansions and celebrating what they believed was their ultimate deliverance from bondage. According to James Oakes, in his book Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861-1865, quote, The sea islands south of Charleston were home to some of the wealthiest and most impressive plantations in the south. They produced an especially fine and valuable fiber from the long-staple cotton plants that could not be grown on the farms of the southern interior. The islands around Port Royal were also home to 11,000 slaves, who had developed over the centuries a subculture of, of their own, different not merely from the culture of their masters, but from that of most southern slaves as well. Planner families and slave lives, largely untouched by the great inland cotton boom, were uncharacteristically stable on the sea islands. But on the morning of November 7, 1861, the sound of bursting shells and Union cannon fire turned their old way of life upside down in a matter of hours. Slaves ran from the fields as their owners scampered to gather their belongings and escape from the islands before the Yankee invaders arrived. When a young slave named Sam Mitchell heard the cannons roar, he thought it was thunder. Son, his mother explained, dat ain't no thunder, dat Yankee come to give you freedom. And so the Yankees had. End quote.
In late October 1861, just before Brigadier General Thomas W. Sherman left on the Port Royal Expedition, the War Department instructed him that his treatment of slavery should be governed, quote, by the principles of the letters addressed by the Secretary of War to Major General Butler of the 30th of May and 8th of August, copies of which were he- are herewith furnished to you, end quote. Technically, that meant that, as was true with Butler, Sherman was not to entice slaves away from plantations. However, slaves who voluntarily came under Union Army control and who had been laboring for the Confederacy were to be treated as contraband of war. That is, they were not to be returned to their owners, but neither were they free. Under the first Confiscation Act, they were confiscated property in the care of the federal government. You guys will remember how in May 1861, the political general Benjamin Butler, commanding in the area of Virginia's Lower Peninsula, then under Union Army control, the area around Fort Monroe, he decided on his own to institute a contraband policy with regard to fugitive slaves who had been working on Confederate fortifications. Butler decided that such slaves who ran away and entered Union lines would not be returned to their owners, but would be treated as contraband, that is, as property that had benefited the Confederate war effort and therefore could be confiscated by the federal government. When Butler informed Washington about what he had done, the Lincoln administration let his action stand. And then in August 1861, Congress passed the first Confiscation Act, which endorsed Butler's policy of seizing slaves who had worked for the Confederacy. President Lincoln, concerned about how the border states might react, reluctantly signed the bill and it became law. Although the slaves on the abandoned Sea Island plantations around Port Royal Sound weren't actually contrabands, according to the first Confiscation Act, since they hadn't been laboring to directly benefit the Confederate war effort, Sherman nevertheless had been given instructions to avail himself of the services of any person, quote, whether fugitives from labor or not, who may offer themselves to the national government, end quote. On November 8th, the day after the battle, Sherman issued a proclamation promising the Sea Island planners that the Union Army's policy was not to, quote, interfere with any of your lawful rights or your social and local institutions, end quote, beyond what the circumstances of war made unavoidable. But by the time Sherman's proclamation was circulated, the area's slave owners had already fled their plantations. Every one of the nearby sea islands had been abandoned by the white residents. On November 11th, Sherman reported to the War Department that on Hilton Head Island, quote, the effect of the victory is startling. Every white inhabitant has left the island, end quote. He wrote that the plantations had been abandoned in a panic and, quote, left to the pillage of hordes of apparently disaffected blacks, end quote. Not only had the whites fled to the mainland, but they had tried to take their slaves with them, especially the young men who were the most valuable and productive workers. But in this, the slave owners had largely failed. Despite the fact that they had told their slaves tall tales of how the Yankees would treat them cruelly, cutting off the slaves' ears or selling them down to Cuba, the slaves, on island after island, refused to leave with their masters. In some cases, they hid in the fields and swamps to avoid being carried off to the mainland. As James Oakes points out in his book, Freedom National, by refusing to leave with their masters, the Sea Island slaves had effectively volunteered to come into Union lines, 
even though they never left their plantations. Shortly after the Union victory at Port Royal, the administration of the Sea Islands was transferred to the Treasury Department. The Sea Island plantations, some of the wealthiest and most impressive in the South, had been abandoned by their owners, and it was the Treasury Department that disposed of abandoned property. Early in the war, Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase was probably the member of Lincoln's cabinet most sympathetic to emancipation. For Chase, it was inconceivable that slaves, having been freed when they came within Union lines, could ever be returned to bondage. In December 1861, Lincoln himself affirmed emancipation in a statement that almost certainly referred to the slaves on Virginia's Lower Peninsula and on the Sea Islands. In his first annual message to Congress, the president noted that numerous fugitive slaves had come into Union lines and were, quote, thus liberated, end quote. Sam and Chase followed this same policy from the moment the Treasury assumed authority over to the Sea Islands, acting not as if the slaves were confiscated rebel property, perhaps subject to reenslavement at some later time, but instead acting as if the slaves had indeed been freed. For example, according to Chase, in March of 1862, the Reverend Richard Fuller, the pastor of a Baptist church in Baltimore, paid him a visit. Fuller called on the Treasury Secretary seeking, quote, advice as to the course he should pursue in regard to his plantations and slaves at Port Royal, end quote. Fuller was a South Carolina slave owner, but he was also a loyal unionist, so he believed he was entitled to retain ownership of his plantations and his slaves down on the Sea Islands. Chase told Fuller that as a loyal union man, he was still proprietor of the land. But that answer didn't satisfy Fuller, so he asked Chase about the slaves. Chase's answer, quote, they were free, I replied, end quote. And so it can be seen how these issues, first with Butler and the contrabands in Virginia, and then with the slaves on the Sea Islands, these issues and how the Lincoln administration handled them show how the administration's approach to emancipation unfolded, or perhaps evolved, is a better word. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When the whites fled the Sea Islands, most of the year's cotton crop had been harvested but had yet to be ginned and sold. It's important to understand that during the Civil War, the South's cotton was an incredibly valuable commodity, still much desired by northern mills. And so during the war, from occupied portions of the South and also through illicit trade, cotton still managed to flow northward. During the war, the federal government was interested in using the southern cotton that did flow northward to help pay for the huge cost of the conflict. So when the Sea Islands came under Union control, the federal government immediately set about supervising the collection and sale and cultivation of the region's valuable cotton crop. This government interest in the Sea Island cotton led to a conflict over control of the area's black labor, a conflict between treasury officials, military commanders, northern entrepreneurs, and the former slaves. On the Sea Islands, after the Battle of Port Royal Sound and after the flight of the area's white residents, General Sherman moved to appoint a number of agents to supervise the collection and sale of that year's cotton crop. But in early December, when the matter was handed off to the Treasury Department, Sam and Chase appointed William Reynolds as the Treasury agent to oversee the disposition of the current cotton crop under a system of free labor. Before the month was out, Reynolds was reporting back to Chase on how the new wage labor system was helping dispose of the Sea Island's 1861 cotton crop and getting it shipped north. Reynolds said he had worked out a system with the former slaves to, quote, allow them a dollar for every 400 pounds of cotton which they deliver at the steamboat landing, paying them partly in money and the balance in clothing and provisions, end quote. With the current cotton crop taken care of, Reynolds suggested that, in the longer term, the government lease the abandoned plantations to private investors with, quote, the Negroes to be paid a fair compensation for their services, end quote. Reynolds added that this appeared to be an opportune moment, quote, to try the experiment of producing cotton in one of the oldest slaveholding states with paid labor, end quote. But then on December 21st, Chase telegraphed Edward L. Pierce, who was a Massachusetts abolitionist who had served as Chase's secretary in the past and who had recently served for Benjamin Butler supervising the contrabands of Fort Monroe. Chase offered Pierce an appointment as a special treasury agent in charge of supervising the transition to freedom of the former Sea Island slaves. Pierce accepted the assignment, and after a quick stop in Washington to meet with Chase and Lincoln, he arrived at Port Royal in mid-January 1862. Within a few weeks, Pierce had produced his first report for Chase, titled The Negroes of Port Royal, which was then quickly published in a Boston newspaper and then at the New York Tribune. In the report, Pierce estimated that as of late January, there were between ten and 12,000 blacks within Union lines on the Sea Islands, although the number was steadily increasing as more and more slaves escaped from the mainland. In his report, Pierce took care to demonstrate that the contrabands had emancipated themselves by voluntarily embracing the Union Army's occupation of the Sea Islands. And just a side note, but it's worth noting how bitter the Southerners were when their slaves showed no loyalty to them, and instead the blacks were overjoyed to see the Yankee invaders. Many, if not most, Southern planters had assumed that their authority to rule over Southern society was a natural right, 
and as slave owners they assumed a paternal obligation to those they held in bondage. In return, the planters expected their slaves to show obedience and loyalty. Slave owners wanted to believe in a reality in which their slaves were happy and content with their lot in life. There's perhaps no better example of this than a statement Confederate General Jubal Early included in his post-war memoirs. He claimed, quote, The conditions of domestic slavery as it existed in the South had not only resulted in a great improvement in the moral and physical condition of the Negro race, but had furnished a class of laborers as happy and content as any in the world. End quote. It's hard to believe that many white Southerners willingly believed that fantasy but the reality, of course, had been much different. While most slaves had behaved as their owners expected them to, their true sentiments came to the fore as the Union Army advanced into the South. As their slaves fled to Union lines at the first opportunity, the slave owners who had long deluded themselves that their slaves were loyal and contented were shocked when the blacks, by their flight to Union lines, showed they had hated their bondage and longed to be free. On the South Carolina mainland, Louis Manigault, who was managing his father's rice plantation, had to go to great lengths to keep the family's slaves in hand after the Union invasion of Port Royal, but he nevertheless found that many of the slaves still made their way to the Yankees. He noted with special bitterness how, quote, This war has taught us the perfect impossibility of placing the least confidence in any Negro, end quote. With the Yankees nearby, he anticipated that, quote, sooner or later every Negro will leave, or those who remain will become so insolent as to force us to shoot them, end quote. And it was the same in Virginia, where federal troops occupied Confederate territory. In August 1862, a Virginia planner named Colin Clark predicted, quote, there is not one Negro in all the South who will remain faithful from attachment to their master or mistress, not one. End quote. At any rate, we just wanted to point out that Southern whites seemed genuinely shocked and deeply resented it when their slaves showed them no loyalty and ran off to Union lines. Or, as Edward Pierce took care to point out, was the case on the Sea Islands. Most of the slaves there had, in a sense, chosen to emancipate themselves by refusing to flee to the mainland with their owners and instead had voluntarily embraced the Union Army's occupation of the islands. After Edward Pierce arrived in South Carolina, he disagreed with Reynolds' plan to lease the Sea Island plantations to private investors. Pierce proposed that the government hire superintendents to take charge of the plantations and to oversee the blacks' transition from slavery to freedom. The superintendents would be hired at salaries high enough to attract the most qualified men. Pierce envisioned his system of superintendents as a temporary measure, a stepping stone designed to put the former slaves to work as free laborers, raising cotton for the government, while they were educated and trained to take up, quote, all the privileges of citizenship, end quote. Pierce's alternative to Reynolds' leasing system would require a dedicated group of superintendents, teachers, and ministers who would come down from the north and oversee the former slaves' transition to freedom. None of those who volunteered to take part in the project would be paid by the federal government. Instead, after Pierce received the go-ahead from Washington to implement his plan, he managed to set up what today would be called a public-private partnership, 
in which volunteers recruited by Pierce would be paid for their services by Northern philanthropists, but would be provided with transportation to the Sea Islands, living accommodations, and supplies by the government. In early 1862, the abolitionist communities of the North, particularly in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, responded to Pierce's call for volunteers with enthusiasm, and thus began what came to be called the Port Royal Experiment. We'll return to the story and pick it back up at that point next week and see how, for the former slaves of the Sea Islands, the coming of the Union Army was just the beginning of their journey into a new and uncharted future. We'll talk about how conscientious and eager whites from the Northern Anti-Slavery Societies attempted to help the freed people toward literacy and economic independence, and we'll also see how the first stumbling steps were taken to enlist black men in the Union Army. What we'll find is that the Port Royal experiment is sometimes called a rehearsal for Reconstruction, because on the Sea Islands, differences soon emerged between the newly liberated slaves, southern whites, northern businessmen, and government officials that offered a preview of the conflicts that would shape post-war Reconstruction. means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 to 1865, by James Oakes. With Freedom National, Oakes has written a really thought-provoking book that questions the viewpoint that the overriding purpose of the North in fighting the Civil War was to put down the rebellion of the Southern states and restore the Union with emancipation as a secondary goal that was adopted only when it became a military necessity. He argues that the two goals were actually intertwined from the very beginning and then throughout the course of the war. It's good stuff, but you don't need to just take our word for it because Freedom National won the Lincoln Prize in 2013. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we wrap things up, we wanted to let you guys know that if you're listening to this episode sometime around its release date, that means it's the beginning of June, and so we're into the start of summer, which is when I like to head up into the mountains here in Colorado and do some hiking. So there may be times over the next three months when we either give you a short episode or we may miss a week in releasing a new episode. So when that happens, just remember it's Rich's fault. (laughs) Yeah, um, if we actually do miss an episode or two, it'll probably be in July when I want to do some longer hikes and hit a few 14ers. But the weeks when we won't have a new episode out, we'll let you know on Facebook and on Twitter and on the website that that will be the case. So, sorry in advance, but if you know me, you know that I'm never happier than when I'm on a trail somewhere up in the mountains. So, I know that you guys will understand if we miss one or two weeks of the podcast this summer. So, when that happens, just remember it's It's Rich's fault. (laughs) And then finally, just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used with the permission of Spiritwood Music. And you guys can help Tracy and I thank them by purchasing Midnight on the Water and other great songs by them. And you can easily do that by going to either iTunes or Amazon.com and searching for Spiritwood Music. 
And last but not least, thanks to all of y'all for joining us for this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with the story of the Port Royal Experiment. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.